You're listening to episode 32 of the GNU World Order for 2018, August 5th. Let's do some listener feedback. First up, we have a message from Dave Morris, who you may or may not know from Hacker Public Radio. He's one of the the upper admins, upper echelon of admins, and I say that because he actually does stuff, you know, on a weekly or daily basis and shows up for the community episode recordings where they review everything that's been uh, that's been played on Hacker Public Radio for the past month. So Dave is a really smart guy, as it turns out. I know this because he did a series. Uh, he co-hosted a series with a guy named Beezy on Hacker Public Radio about awk and how to use awk. Now, I have had a, an O'Reilly book, you know the one, called It's Said and Awk, and it's got two animals on the cover, which I guess are supposed to be representative of Said and Awk. And they're, it's a great book, but I kid you not, I've had that book for years. First on my physical bookshelf, and then once I got a, a proper e-reader, it, it kind of transitioned. I, I repurchased it in a humble bundle thing uh, as an e-book. So I've now got it on my digital bookshelf, and I, I swear to you, I read it on the plane from the U.S. to the New Zealand. Didn't, for whatever reason, and this is no fault of the book or the author, it just wasn't resonating with me. It just wasn't working for me. And so, and, and I keep thinking, I gotta learn art, gotta learn art. Finally, Dave Morris and Be Easy do this series, and now I know Auk. I mean, I don't know Auk, but I use Auk on a, on a weekly basis now. It's fantastic. It is, it is a tool that I now have in my tool kit. And that's what I wanted. That's really, I mean, I didn't, I don't need to, you know, write a, uh, a media ripper in Auk or, or a, a word processor in Auk. You know, I don't need that. I just wanted to understand how to, how to utilize it. And now I've, I've written a program that's in use at a, at my, in, at my job. I, we use it, uh, my team uses it every every week multiple times every week so yeah it's it's pretty neat it's it's really a cool thing and dave morris and be easy were the ones who finally broke that open for me and, and it's just so weird about learning styles you know is it why why was it better for me to sit down I, what i did was i took all their episodes i think there were 11 at the time i took them all downloaded them and then i sat down with my computer at a table and just played the episodes and followed along it was very methodical and very I guess interactive in a way. I mean, I was, I or or very active anyway. Um, and I could have done the same thing with a book. You know, it, it would have worked, I guess. But for whatever reason, the the just the the way that Dave Morris and Beezy delivered the material was it just it was right for me. And maybe it was a co- maybe it was a combination of things like well, right, you know, good timing, a, a clear and present need to learn awk because I had to write this. I, I wanted to write this tool that we would use at work. So maybe it was a combination of things. I don't know. But it was really great. If you have not listened to this thing, you should go listen to it. So his email has nothing to do with that. But I guess in a way it's it's sort of related. So I was talking about something in ba- uh, in uh, twelve episode 1226. And I, I don't really remember what I was talking about in that episode. But Dave says, you probably know this, but I didn't hear you mention it. You can substring bash strings in variables without using pipes because the parameter substitution features uh, features include this capability. I did an HPR show on this, number 1648. Ah, there is a little advertisement for Hacker Public Radio. So if you go to hackerpublicradio.org slash eps slash HPR 1648 underscore summary.pdf or diagram.pdf, you can, you can see a bunch of the topical information about that episode. But here's his example, which I think is is worth is worth doing. So if you do, for instance, um, he just does like, and this is in bash, so uh, var equals quote, let's do just clatu. No, let's do hello. That's a good one. So hello. So that's one, two, three, four, five letters in the word hello, right? So if I do an echo dollar sign var, we get the word hello echoed back into our terminal. That's, that's to be expected. But now what would happen if we did, for instance, echo, quote, dollar sign, brace, uh, var, colon, zero, colon, let's do two, brace, close quote. Now we get HE echoed to our terminal. Let's try something different. I'll hit the up arrow, and I'll change that from uh, var, colon, zero, colon, two, to, uh, let's do var, colon, one, and then colon five, and then we get hello, no H, because in bash, like many, many things, Lua being the exception, uh, like many things, the arrays start at zero in bash. 
So uh, I'm, I'm, I say array because I'm assuming this basically is turning that string into a character array. So yeah, we've got um, we've got hello, and then if we do, I guess if we just did, for instance, zero colon five, then we would get the whole thing. We would get we would get the whole word, and we do. Yes. So there you go. You can cut up things in Bash by defining the position that you want Bash to start or stop. At. And you have to use this convention of dollar sign brace, and then the name of the variable that you're cutting up, and then colon start, colon stop, brace, quote. I, I think it does technically work without the quotes. Yes, it does, but I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that it's highly recommended to retain the quotes. I mean, whether or not I read it doesn't really matter. It is better to keep the quotes. Point being, that's something that you can do in Bash, and uh, I did know that. I've, I've definitely used that before. Probably not as often as I guess I could. I think, if I had to guess, I think I probably tend to avoid this, and why, you know, I mean, by avoiding it, I mean these days I don't even think about it usually, but but I believe that I probably avoid this because it's very non-portable, which, I mean, it's funny because I keep saying, oh, who cares about portability on Bash because everyone can install Bash, and there's a lot of truth to that, and yet I still have this kind of, this tendency to avoid Bashisms, and I, I, I'm, I'm very, very conflicted about this topic because on one hand, as I say, Bash is free, it's open source, you can put it on pretty much anything these days. Honestly, I can't think of what you can't have Bash on. And it's a great shell, I love it, I think Bash is fantastic. So it's funny that I keep trying to avoid bashisms, even though on the other side of the coin, I feel like there's not really a good reason to avoid bashisms, and yet I still do. And and I, I think part, I mean, part of that early on was just because I felt portability was a good thing, just because that, that's how I feel about computing. But uh, in the when I moved to New Zealand, my workplace was TCSH based, that we didn't use Bash there, we used TCSH. Partly, I think, because of historical, re you know, it's been around since the 90s, this place that I worked at, this movie company, and so they had a lot of internal just scripts and processes that assumed you were on TCSH, because that's what, you know, that's what the IRIX systems that they used to run used, so that was what they used. So I kind of got used to using TCSH in earnest for a good three or four years, or however long it was, and, and that kind of reinforced that. So if you, if you open up TCSH and do set var equals hello, and then do an echo dollar sign var, that works, hello, okay, that's cool. So now if we do an echo quote dollar sign brace var colon zero colon two, let's do that, uh, brace and quote bad modifier in dollar sign zero. So that, that doesn't work. That's not something that, that TCSH knows how to do. So if you've got that in your script and someone tries to run it on something that's n not as, as bash fluent or bash friendly as, well, bash, then it will not work. So I imagine that's probably why I avoid it. But, but frankly, there, there are so many features on bash that, that I think if I, if I needed that feature, then I'm pretty sure I would just use it and just say, hey, in order to run this script, you gotta run bash. It's just that simple, and it's not, and, and there's no, you know, it's it's just so, so common. I mean, you can have Bash on Windows now, as far as I know, so it's pretty much everywhere. And hey, speaking of things that are everywhere, Dave Morris's second comment in this email is about Python, and he says that he hasn't really gotten into Python that much, but the the indentation thing has really bugged him, and he's not sure that might be kind of why he hasn't gotten into Python all that much. And and I, I gotta I gotta sympathize with that, you know? I mean, the, the indentation thing in Python is really, really difficult, I think, to get around. If you, if, if you don't like that, I think it's really hard to get around, especially when there are other languages out there that are, you know, in terms of ease of entry, are as, you know, very, very similar to Python in, in, in terms of, can I teach this to someone in three months. I think there's a huge argument that, that there are a lot of languages out there, I mean Lua being one, that you could teach a newcomer this thing and then they would be able to write programs for themselves. I think Python, the, the, the major, major advantage for me about Python I think is is all the well I mean all of its libraries right all of the modules I mean that's that's the classic argument for practically any language the more that is already done for you the 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 
the easier that language is perceived to be, because no matter what you want to do, there's a library for it, so you no longer have to program as much. And that's a huge deal, and I think that really goes into what I was talking about, like, about trying to empower users to actually use their computers in ways that the Unix people back in the 80s meant for people to use computers. You can watch old AT&T training videos on Unix, and their intent is clear. Their intent is for users, normal users, to pipe commands together to come up with, essentially, their own little applications. So... If we're not letting people do that in what we provide, then we're, we're, we have regressed since the 80s. We don't want to do that. So I think Python is a, has a strong argument just based on its, its level of adoption, really. I mean, there are GUI toolkits out there, a plenty for Python, and maybe not so many for Lua. Or, or pick your, your language, whatever, whatever you're looking at. So anyway, that's a comment about Python, and it's funny because Python and Bash, in a way, are similar, in that I keep thinking, well, Bash is everywhere, so why not embrace the Bashisms? And I say that very sincerely. I'm not saying that sarcastically, or, or as if, though, I'm, I'm being flippant, like, oh, people who say that are stupid. I'm, I'm actually saying that. Like, I, I really do believe that embracing Bashisms sometimes just makes sense, because, like, there's all these features, and if you try to, if you try to not use them, then why are you even using Bash? Why are you scripting in Bash, why not just script for something else, like TCSH? And, and then there's the argument, well, but now I'm doing things in TCSH, and there are certain things about TCSH that, that Bash will not do. You know, there'll, there'll be an incompatibility there. So portability only goes so far if you're getting to a certain point in your complexity. Uh, like, like, spo- like trash. Trashy? My, my little, little, my, my rather, uh, my rather substantial stand-in for the rm command. You can find out more about it at slackermedia.info slash trashy. Trashy is a, a, a substantial application. I mean, it, it's got several lines of code in it. It does lots of things. It has functions, and and it, it, it has a menu. You know, it, it's got lots of things that you can do in that one script, but it's it's just a bash script. And I find that, that Trashy is a really great, or, or the idea of your own custom command line trash tool is a really great intro in, in a Unix class. Like when I'm teaching people about Unix and Linux, one of the first shell scripts that I have them write is a trash tool because it highlights several, several different things. It, it highlights, first of all, that you too can program. Like, really easily, if you know how to do something on a Linux computer, then you can program it and make it into an application that you use on a daily basis. And here's how. So, the t- you know, a trash tool is really just moving a file from one location to some out-of-the-way, out-of-sight, out-of-mind location. Now, it also highlights on... on of a free desktop, the free desktop specification and what how great open protocols are and standards are because here you are making your own little trash tool and, and the easy way to do that would just be to create some, you know, dot trash folder somewhere and move your files into that folder. Ah, but open desktop provides a standard for where the trash ought to be located on a POSIX system. And so you can do your custom little trash script and move a file that you no longer want to see, rather than RMing it out of existence, you can move it to your standard desktop trash location. And then when you when the students go to their desktop and they click on their trash icon, oh my gosh, there's the file they just moved there. So they've 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 really created an application now because they they've used it on on the, the strange foreign environment that is the shell but then they can also witness it in the familiarity of a GUI desktop. It's a very powerful, powerful lesson. And it also tells them not to use RM, which is hugely powerful. So it's a, it's a powerful little lesson, and it's something that I use frequently. But but the but the, this version of the trash tool that I typically have people write as part of this sort of here's what Linux can do for you is, you know, maybe a six-line code. You know, it's, it's like here's, here's, how you, here's how you get stuff into your script from from arguments on the sh- on the shell and here's what you here's how you can move something from from one place to another here's how you can check to make sure a, a your trash folder exists or whatever you know little things like that and as as it is it's like the, you know it's a little six line really stupidly simple script 
it's very, very highly portable. But once you start trying to do fancier things, like, well, how can I make sure that Trash understands that the white space in this file name is, you know, is to be escaped and not something, not two separate files, and how can I list the contents of the trash, and how can I uh, restore from the, the trash, and all these other things, then you start to get more complex, and the, the, the portability starts to get to be really quite challenging because now you're you're trying to do fancy fancy things where bash just makes it so easy for you and then if you try to make it work both on tcsh and bash it becomes a lot more difficult so there's there are degrees i guess of of portability and and when you decide to embrace the specifics of of a language or a programming environment or whatever now here's another listener email that has been in my inbox for a while so almost a month Almost a month. But anyway, it's from Jim. And Jim is the guy from Pedal PC. Pedal PC dot... No. Bikesatwork.com, maybe? I don't know. Pedal PC... No, Pedal PC.com. Sorry. Um, Pedal PC.com. And he says that he made a mistake in his dot bash RC explanation. Or r- r- rather, when he was speaking about his own dot bash RC, he said that he had that he had some hack in there that appended which Python virtual environment he's working on, but actually he looked at his bash RC and saw that that had nothing to do with his bash RC. It's actually part of I guess virt uh, virt on or whatever the Python package is called. But when you when you make your virtual environment and then activate your virtual environment, it 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 prepins the location of your virtual environment or or the fact that you are in a virtual environment to your to your prompt. So that's not it's it's not Bash RC doing it. Uh, it's funny. I think Bash RC has a notorious reputation for 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 doing just this for for fooling people. You know, and and that's I've heard a lot of people say, well, I don't really do a whole lot in my Bash RC because I don't want to develop my own interface, essentially. You know, and the the fear is that you'll put a bunch of stuff in .bash RC and then someday you'll be on some other computer and you'll type whatever you know, whatever special command you've come up with, like git dash everything. You know, and you'll type that in and you'll and you'll realize, oh my gosh, there's no such command as git dash everything. That was something that I made up in my dot bash RC an alias. And now I now I have to remember all, you know, ten steps of this complex thing that I that I don't actually remember because it's all it's all done automatically for me by Bash RC. So I think there's a reputation for Bash RCs to kind of trick the user a little bit. I do not find, for the record, that to be a problem for myself. I've I've I have yet to forget what my Bash RC is doing for me versus what I am doing for myself. So, you know, if I if I have some command, I mean, I alias ls, I overload ls all the time. I, I be, because it's silly not to. I mean, ls dash color dash dash color dash F, capital F dash H dash um, you know whatever. It's just after a while, it, it becomes kind of silly. Never been a problem for me. And then finally, he says that he uses I, that I was correct. He uses vim, not vi. And and as I said in the episode where I was originally reading his email, if you've never tried pure vi, you should go try it sometime because you will be amazed at the things that it does not have that vim that you take for granted in vim. Okay. And then finally, he notes because uh, I was I was speaking about hey, I want to get uh, you know my show on more syndicated networks and and sort of increase awareness of hey I'm out there I have a show about Linux sometimes an informative one and and he says that there is an aggregator that I believe I mentioned specifically and it's called Stitcher and it said he says that they monetize podcasts by by inserting advertisements inside the podcast that's that's pretty surprising. That's um, that's really quite shocking. Now, interestingly, I, so first of all, I didn't know that, so I I have no interest in participating in that myself. Like, I would not go to Stitcher and and give them my show for you know for for them to monetize on top of like that that would why would I even go to the effort that would be puzzling to me so I have no interest in that but I do actually not mind if people do monetize this show. I mean, I I challenge them to monetize this show. Although, see, that's the thing. It's kind of funny because when you think, okay, well, people can do whatever they want. Not a problem. And I I think that a lot of us, 
at least those of us who say, yeah, you can make money off of this. If you if you can figure out a way to monetize this, go for it. And and I think there's this this very uh, secret sort of latent assumption that we're making that we're not even aware, but we're assuming best intent. We think, well, if you can make money off of this, then go for it because, I mean, that would be great for you. You could make money off of my show and my show would be helping people and that sort of thing. But we don't really think about what what could likely happen where someone makes money off of the show by misrepresenting the show, you know, or or by by um, bundling our show together with a bunch of other ridiculous stuff and and just using it as filler or or whatever, you know, whatever kind of scenario you can imagine. And I've seen this this happen before, you know, there 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 was this um it probably still is. There are probably things out there where where they're selling open source software for a for a fee and they're always kind of falling back on that argument of well it's for the convenience and and well I'm packaging this stuff for you on a on a CD so you should pay me and all this other weird stuff but there's there's kind of, they're just barely scraping by on that you know cuz cuz well you don't mention that they could get it for free elsewhere yeah I'm not obligated to do that that's if they don't if they they could do their own research I'm providing a service, you know, and it's it's just kind of got this layer of slime on it that's very thin, and you can ignore it, but at the same time, if you really get into, like, consumer rights and really think about, well, well what effect does this have on someone who is now paying you for something and, and you're you're misrepresenting what you're providing them? You know, if, if someone sold the GNU World Order as a, as a valid introduction to Linux, that would be, a, I think, a disservice. Because if, if I was going to pitch this as a introduction to Linux and, and open source, then I would be more methodical about how I record things. There, there would be episodes, and I do plan a couple of these. Uh, I've done the Slackware one already, but I do I, I would record them as, as a lesson plan rather than as, hey, here's what is on my mind this week. So, so that would be a bad thing, and I wouldn't want anyone to spend their hard-earned money on something believing that they were getting a, a a course on open source and maybe they would you know have played like some portion of an episode where i am talking very specifically about you know like my proc my proc ps episode from what was it last week or the week before where it was it was actually about how to do stuff on linux but if you if you come to this show and pay for it and then think it's all that all the time, then that would be a pity for you because it wouldn't be and you would feel cheated. And, and I don't want to cheat people and I don't want to enable others to cheat people. Having said all of that, of course, again, I'm okay with people monetizing. There is no restriction. This is a Creative Commons show. You can do, as long as you give me credit and share alike, then you can do whatever you want with the show. But this kind of brings up a good point and that is, well, how do people find this show? And I've been working on that a little bit here and there. One of the, the the outlets that I have uh, that I'm leveraging now is Blueberry.com. I think I might have mentioned this before, but you can go to Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. So no vowels except the U in Blueberry, and then .com and uh, slash GNU World Order, and that that gives you a page of various subscribe buttons. This isn't uh, this isn't being monetized or tracked at all. It's I just figured it was a nice way to put it out there so that people might be able to find it other than stumbling on gnuworldorder.info. And the effect of this means that people can now go to apparently they can go to iTunes and search for GNU World Order and find it. I don't know. I don't have access to iTunes or the podcasting app or, or whatever people use nowadays on on Apple to listen to podcasts. But from what I've been told by a reliable source, Cobra 2, uh, he is able on his work phone, it's a work phone, it's not his fault, uh, on his work iPhone, he can subscribe to GNU World Order and listen to it in his in the iPhone podcasting app. All of this is Greek to me. I don't understand what I'm saying. I am just telling you that that is what he said. So you can tell other people that if they have an iPhone, they can listen to GNU World Order now, or, or easily, more easily now, uh, I guess. So there's that. There are also locations uh, or buttons, rather, for other applica- uh, other other platforms like subscribe on Android and subscribe via email and just all these kind of weird things that I don't really understand why they're there. But that's Blueberry.com. So that's that's an outlet that people can can use to find the show. Hopefully, there's another one. 
and that is G-Potter. G-Potter is an application. It's a pod-catching application that's been around forever. I mean, it was it was possibly, I want to say, the first that I ever knew about on Linux. I mean, coming from my previous platform, not knowing how to get podcasts, I'm pretty sure G-Potter was kind of the one that I, I learned about and used initially. So it's it's a nice little application, and it, it does just that. It does it does podcasts. But what it also happens to do, in addition to being a desktop client for you to manage your podcast listening in, it, it happens to uh, have a big catalog of, of great podcasts. So if you go to gpotter.net slash podcast slash gnu dash world dash order dash linux dash augcast dash seven then you will find this show i'm working on getting that url a little bit friendlier i recently emailed gpotter and got um i don't know publishing rights to it or whatever or you know the ability to manage these shows that that i happen to to own so I'm going to work on getting some of the older ones that have been sort of aggregated, I guess, just by nature of, of what Gpotter does, and, and maybe get a, a better URL for that. But they're still working on a lot of their back end to let the publishers manage their own shows. So I'm not sure how much flexibility I'll have. But I'll put that show in or that link in the show notes. And if if you're on Gpotter or if you're searching in in a in an application like um the Android application Pod Podcast Antenna or something like that, um, then then they actually have a thing where you can search GPotter. So that's something that you might be able to do at some point as well. So there are there are becoming more places to find GNU World Order, and I think that is ultimately a good thing. You know what else is good? Coffee. Coffee's great. So let's go get a cup of coffee. And if you're driving, hey, pull over and get a cup of coffee. You deserve it. You've earned it. So do that, and then we'll come back and keep talking. now. I'm assuming that you have coffee. I have my coffee. It's right here. It's a custom blend, I have to say. I, I did measurements and figured out the correct proportions, and, and it's quite good, actually. So what had happened was I got this uh, this sort of an espresso roast. You know, it was a very dark roast, and I found that it was a little bit too dark for me. And, I mean, not that I... I mean, I like some dark roasts, but since I'm just using a... Um, what in the U.S. we call a French press, but here in New Zealand we call it a plunger which sounds weird to a U.S. ear because the plunger is something that you use for, for plumbing. So the, the you, you use this press, and and if you put the dark roast in that, or at least this particular dark roast, uh, it, it comes out basically just tasting like ash water. I mean, it's just, it's all dark. There's no coffee. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm going to cut this this dark roast with something because I want I'm not going to throw it out, so I'll just cut it with something. And I just happened to, to get the proportions correct for this for this, you know, I just kind of put, I, I just kind of eyeballed it, really. Just dumped some dark coffee in, dumped some uh, sort of a milder coffee into the, the tin, and then I stirred it up, and then I did the, I made a cup of coffee, and it was amazing. It was the most amazing cup of coffee I've had in, in, in months. And so I, I went back and reverse engineered the proportions. I weighed on a kitchen scale the coffee you know, because I knew that I had had 200 grams of the dark roast and 200 grams of the milder roast. So I weighed them, figured out how much I'd used to combine them, and came up with a really good little blend. I've really been enjoying it. So that's my, my coffee story for this episode. Another story, less less cheerful, is that recently you may or may not have heard that Slackware Linux is in trouble. Yes, it's it's true. Uh, Patrick Volkerding, the maintainer of Slackware since 1992 or whatever it is, posted on the official Slackware forums at linuxquestions.org that he has not been getting paid from the Slackware store. He's not been getting his cut from the Slackware store. So all those past episodes where I say things like you should subscribe to Slackware Linux, it supports it supports Slackware and you also get a disk every time Slackware is released or or you should go buy a, the book, the Slackware b- book from the store or whatever. All of that was a lie because apparently Patrick Volkerding lately has not been getting his cut from the store. Now the store interestingly 
is run by some other third party, and then I don't know too much about who this third party, who these third parties are, but I, I do, I, I kind of always assumed it was some kind of natural evolution from where Slackware originally was available from, which, you know, like Walnut Creek and CDROM.com, which those are not valid anymore, so don't bother. But they're, you know, I, I kind of assumed that it was some kind of branch off of that. I, I could be making that up. It, it might just be some random people that Patrick Volkerding met who said, yeah, we know how to do e-commerce, and that's how it happened. Who knows? Point being, I get, uh, I get so I subscribe to Slackware. Well, I used to anyway. I subscribe to the Slackware releases, so I get a, I, I got a DVD every time it was released. It was sent to my, do- my, my doorstep by mail. I would always, you know, anytime I moved, which is fairly frequent. I would email the store and tell them my updated address, and it always seemed to be pretty good. They they tracked me pretty well. Like, they, they didn't lose track of me ever. They always responded to my emails. So, I don't know. I felt pretty good about it. And there was this person at the store named Ter- Therese or Teresa or something, and I used to get emails from her when I would donate, because sometimes I would just make a donation, because... I, I I use Slackware a lot, if you haven't noticed. I rely on it, so I figured, well, I'm going to donate some money. I'm going to throw some money at this project. So I would click on the PayPal Donate button, and there was this kind of PayPal interface that did not require me to have a PayPal account in order to use. It was quite nice. I could, I could give my credit card or debit card as a one-time thing. It wouldn't store my information or anything, or at least that's what they were saying. And, and it would be deducted from my bank account, and it would go through PayPal, and I assumed it would go to Slackware. Apparently, it goes to Slackware store, and they haven't been forwarding a cut to Slackware. This is quite disturbing to to a lot of people. I mean, it's disturbing probably to Patrick Volkerding, probably very much so. But it's also disturbing as a, you know, sort of a consumer to me, because I feel like, well, wait a minute, I, I was, I was either told explicitly or it was strongly implied through maybe a series of omissions of, oh, by the way, we meant to tell you, you're donating to the store, not to the Slackware project, which seems highly disingenuous to me. But whatever the case may be, I, I don't feel like I was being... I feel like I have been misled in 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 donating to an entity that apparently is not Slackware. So it, it's, it's quite upsetting um, on the whole... Because uh, it, it just seems like the store, surely the store shouldn't, you know, it should only exist to serve Slackware. But apparently, I don't know, the, the store must apparently feel otherwise. Because according to Patrick Volkerding, he is not getting the money that people are sending to the store. By by a very large amount, he is being cheated out of money. Because, I mean, apparently, I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, for instance. Like a, you know, definitely like a year's income type number rather than, well, they've been skimming a little bit off the top. It's It's been more like, well, he's just not getting it. Now, I don't know how long this has been going on. I do know that, I, and I, I will say that I, I mentioned the donate button to someone and that someone, it wasn't Patrick, but to someone, and that someone said, well, don't bother with that donate button anymore. Because we, I don't remember the exact wording of the email, so I, I shouldn't put words into this mystery person's mouth. But they, they essentially told me that there were some problems with it. Or there may, there may be some problems with it. So I didn't know what that meant at the time. Still don't. I certainly know what that refers to now. And so Patrick Volterding pretty much posted on the forum that he was very nearly going broke. And and he had thought, he'd, he'd assumed all this time that Slackware simply wasn't thriving, that that he got this amount of money because that's all he, Slackware was selling. And then he found out uh, through one way or another, and again, I, I have no inside information on this, so I don't know how all of this came to light, but he figured out that, that the income of Slackware was substantially more than what he was seeing for himself. So that's that's a problem. And the LinuxQuestions.org forum, where this was all revealed, rendered a... Well, it rendered a couple of things. It rendered a fake Bitcoin address, the Bitcoin wallet address, which was copy and pasted by someone 
from some other form, which seems like such a horrible idea to just paste that sort of information into a form. Hopefully they've taken that number down because it just it just adds to the confusion, but whatever. But then finally, Patrick Volkerding, Volkerding posted his personal PayPal, I guess, uh, destination link, and that is paypal.me slash volkerdie. Uh, that's V-O-L-K-E-R-D-I. And, and that's that's his standard Volker die that that's his username typically so uh, that and and Patrick Volkerding is a known entity on linuxquestions.org so I have no no question that this is well what 99% no question about the authenticity the authenticity of the person posting claiming to be Patrick Volkerding and the person receiving the money at paypal.me slash die so if you want to donate to slackware you can do that and that is paypal.me slash volkerdie. And I don't really say this that often. I used to earlier in this in the show, like in episode two and three and, and thereabouts. Uh, but but I don't take donations for GNU World Order. I don't take donations for Hacker Public Radio. I don't take donations for Chronicles and Commons. I don't take donations for slackermedia.info. I just don't really tend to take donations because I don't tend to need them. Now, that's not to say I won't take a free server account or a a free this or free that, you know, I mean, a free coffee, heck, but, but that generally, yeah, it's, it's more of things in kind, I guess, rather than, than money, because money, I know how to generate, I know how to make money happen, so, I mean, not a lot of it, but, I mean, I can, I can get a job, is what I'm trying to say, so I don't feel, and, and, and getting a job does not impact my output all that much, I mean, I guess it does, in a perfect world, if I didn't have to have a job, maybe I would get more done, but, but I, I don't feel like I need to to go out and, and solicit money, and so I don't. But if you want to donate to any project that I do, whether it's this show, GNU World Order, or slackermedia.info, my tutorial site about Linux and multimedia, and as the name suggests, Slackware, then by all means, donate to paypal.me slash That's it. You can email me and tell me that you've donated if you want. There's no need to, but... My my point is that should you feel the inclination to donate to anything that I do, forward that on to a more deserving project like Slackware. Because truly, without Slackware, I, I probably wouldn't be here, and and certain certainly a lot of sites that I maintain would not exist. A lot of tutorials that I've done probably wouldn't exist. So Slackware has been hugely in, influential on on me and my output. So if you want to donate to something, then Slackware is a great target. A donation to Slackware, I would consider as a donation to me. But this this opens up a larger topic for me that I think about, I don't know, fairly frequently, I guess. And that topic is money, really. It's, it's an important topic. It's something that affects most of us, whether we like it or not. And I've done a couple of Hacker Public Radio episodes recently about money and, and how how we are told to manage it versus some of the things that we do to manage it and and some of the things that you can kind of work your way into and so on. And you can go listen to that if you want to, but I'm really speaking very specifically here about money and uh, the internet. And, and by the internet, I, I mean the internet as well as open source projects on the internet. A long time ago, way, way back when, the internet didn't need money, it seemed like. There was this magical thing about the internet where nothing cost money. Everything was zero dollars. In fact, some things paid you to partake. I kid you not. Some of the earlier internet sites would literally pay you to, like, sign up. The PayPal, famously, when when they first opened PayPal... I remember, like, people were getting PayPal accounts because they would give you, like, $5 or something stupid like that for, for signing up to their, their, their stupid service. And, and look where it got them. I mean, it worked. So, and, and I'm sure there are a lot more stories about you know, the dot-com bubble, uh, about money and, and how free everything was and how great it all was. And, of course, we all know that the dot-com bubble did eventually burst and things kind of fell apart. How, how big of a deal was that? Did that actually influence the internet that much? I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I don't, I've never really studied this sort of thing myself. But I do notice that it seems like now people are asking for money to stay online. You know, it seems to be a really 
a big problem for some reason. Like, I cannot be, I cannot maintain a web presence unless I get paid for it. And I'm not really clear on what that is, what's causing that. And I keep thinking, well, there's got to be something about the internet that's costing people money because they all seem to open up a Patreon account or a you know, they have a donation button or, or, or whatever. So what is it about the new internet that apparently costs money to maintain a presence on, whereas the old internet seemed like everyone could have a podcast or a website or whatever, and it was just, it was just there. Nobody needed money for it. It was just, it was just there, and I guess there are. I mean, this is a sincere question. It's it's, it's actually an. Um, I'm not. This is not rhetorical. This is a question. Like, what is it? What what's going on? What where? I mean, I know that there's there are no longer you know GeoCities and and all these little sort of free freebie you know pseudo internet communities where you can just go and establish your presence on those but i mean there are other places right there are other things out there but even like a lot of those other places eventually they're going to ask you for a donation for for taking part of their on their community so yeah it seems like the internet needs needs money apparently and I, I don't fully understand where all of that's coming from. And at the same time, I understand that that, that, that it makes sense, that, that money is often necessary. I mean, certainly if, if my show was very popular and had, you know, four times as many downloads or, or a hundred times as many downloads, I'm, I'm assuming someone that I'm, some, someone from uh, the host of the server would, would contact me and, and, and let me know that I needed to, I don't know, pay more for more bandwidth or something. Or maybe I would, you know, if I was self-hosting it out of just my closet, then maybe I would have to uh, implement some failovers and some uh, redundancies so that when, when people are flocking to my site to download the latest episode, they're not getting timeouts and things like that. So maybe maybe I would feel this crunch if I was if I was internet famous or something but i don't know I, i'm not i'm not feeling it i've not felt it in the past you know however long i've been doing this show 12 seasons now every season is pretty much a year or so no not 12 years th- whatever 10 years whatever it's been um i haven't really felt this 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 need to reach out and cry out for help that's that being said i i have gotten help you know people have 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 provided me with free server space and free things. So I, I do benefit from, from someone's money, but I do wonder if, if everything that I see online is th- that is asking for money is necessarily needing money, or if it's money because it, it, the, a work, a job that would generate that money would then interfere with the ability to do what that site or, or that, you know, the, whatever you're online for, uh, you, would, you would not be able to do it as much because you'd, you're, you're working instead of working on your internet stuff. So, I don't know. Money is apparently a problem on the internet in the modern internet. And I think that the 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 danger I guess is that a lot of people can ask anyone can ask for money, right? So, you can just be anybody on the internet and say, "Hey, in order to support this site, why don't you give me some money?" That's not necessarily anything. You might not even be doing anything really online. And once you get that money, you might stop doing things because now you've got maybe anxiety over what you have to do because now you've got money and now people have expectations and, you know, the relationship changes and all those other, all the other politics of, of money and what it, what it involves. It's, it's a, to drag. Like I say, it, it, it affects all of us in one way or another, whether we like it or not. But I think it's important for open source projects, and I'm being very broad in my definition of open source projects. Uh, I could even say open source and open source supportive projects. So, you know, podcasts, things like that. That if if there's a need for assistance, that, that, that people are not afraid to ask for assistance. And I guess the, the reason that I'm thinking about this is because I've seen several projects in my time kind of fade away in one way or another. And sometimes they just fade away because there's a loss of interest or they're, you know, real life gets in the way, whatever. But other times, I mean, people have said explicitly, like, I- I'm stopping this thing because there's not enough interest or because it's becoming too much for me to handle. And whenever I see that, you know, I mean, me and, and other people, I think the, the natural impulse is to th- is to say, well, why didn't you ask for help sooner? Like, why are we only hearing about this now? So it's really important, I think, to not be afraid to ask for help, which I think 
at least in the U.S., it's very, very downplayed. It's very looked down upon. And it's also hard. It's it's difficult to ask for help because it there's, the, the, you know, you feel like you're admitting weakness or you feel like you are bothering people or that you are tr making people give you money and you're not sure if they even have money in the first place. So it's really kind of hard to ask for money and so on or support time, whatever you're asking for. So all of this kind of harkens back to the very early days of DistroWatch. DistroWatch.com, of course, is a pretty well-known site among, the, I think, the Linux, the sort of rabid Linux community. People who really like Linux and like to keep their finger on the pulse of Linux. DistroWatch is the place to do that because they watch distribution of Linux. They they report on what Linux distributions are out there. Well, there's a, a distribution of DistroWatch uh, that is the podcast, the the audio version of their of their weekly newsletter. And the podcast is called Distro Watch Weekly. They haven't posted, at least to my feed, I haven't seen anything since January, but or or so. But uh, they they they've been pretty steady for the past I don't know a very long time, eight eight or nine years probably. And the guy, I, as far as I know, who kind of started the podcast was I think his name was Bruce, if I recall correctly. And he would do this Distro Week, this just Distro Watch Weekly show, and just read the newsletter. And it was really well done. It was very straight and didn't have a whole lot of Bruce's opinion or whatever the guy's name. I think it was Bruce. Uh, it didn't have a whole lot of opinion in it. He just, it was very straight, very sort of delivered. This was what was written on Distro Watch Weekly, and I'm going to read it to you. And it was, it was very appreciated. I used to listen to it all the time. Really enjoyed it. Never emailed the guy. Never talked to him. And then one day he said, I'm going to stop doing, I'm now... I'm I'm stopping DistroWatch Weekly because I'm not really sure if anyone's listening to it or if anyone appreciates it because no one ever told him that he was doing a good job. I felt horrible. I felt so guilty. I still feel guilty because I'm pretty sure I've talked about this before on this show. So I'm still talking about it, you know, probably eight or ten years later. So I do feel like rather than making people... Uh, ask for help. Sometimes it, I think it is worth, as as consumers and as listeners and as users, I think it's worth sometimes to reach out to people and offer something, whether it's encouragement or thanks or help or free services or f service space or shell accounts or whatever it is, I, I think it's probably worth sometimes getting in early and, and making that offer, putting it out there saying, hey, look, I appreciate what you're doing, and here's something that I might be able to offer to you to help make your life easier. Now, to be fair, I don't know, you know, if I had done that for Patrick Volkerding, I, I don't know that he would have taken me up on the offer, because we're all human, and sometimes we think, no, no, I don't need any help, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, and then suddenly you look at your bank account one day, and you think, I'm actually not fine, this is this is a problem. So I don't, I don't know. And, and certainly this is not a cry for help. I'm, I do, I'm not soliciting you, dear reader, to email me telling me how appreciated I am. I, I get lots of great feedback from all of you and I appreciate it. What I'm really just saying is to keep an eye out there, keep an eye on that, that their internet and look at the services that you use and, and see if there are times or places where you can make a, a deeper connection. And I think ultimately, the old internet versus the new internet, the difference really was that personal connection. And it's it's funny, it's very funny, because these days we have all of these fancy social medias and we have all these ways to make each other feel happy and send each other emojis. But I don't know, for my money, seems like the old internet was a lot cozier than the new internet. Maybe that's just my perception. But on the old internet, you could go to a site, and you could read the thoughts of the webmaster or the webmistress, and you could contact them, you could email them, or find them in IRC, or find them in a, a forum, and, and make some kind of connection, and let them know that their efforts are being appreciated, and so on. And and these days, I don't know, even, even if there is that ability, it just seems like there's so much signal-to-noise dissidence that I don't know that that comes through on the new internet. And so I'm encouraging you, in whatever way possible, to treat the the new internet like the old internet. Make it make it an old, homegrown neighborhood internet again, and contact the people that you appreciate. 
let them know that what they're working on is something that you are monitoring and that you are appreciating and that you are using or whatever. And I don't know if it's always money that's that's needed. Uh, you know, maybe in some cases it really is, and in other cases I don't know that that's actually what it is. I think it's sometimes the the desire for the abstract acknowledgement that money represents. And I don't think, you know, my general philosophy on money is that that's not a healthy thing, that, that money is an abstraction of how we actually feel. That's not healthy. That's less healthy than just than just working together on something and making money kind of not so important. And I realize the the level of irony of all of this sort of talk coming from me, someone who is not really super social. I, I don't do well around people that often or, or certainly crowds. And, and I may, I don't know how I come across via email. Maybe I come across that like I don't care about the people who email me or something. I'm not sure. I don't know how I come across to other people, obviously. But, but it, it's weird for me to be talking about, oh, how we should be uh, more communal and, 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 and sort of bind together and, and build great things. But at the same time, it's really not weird for me to be talking about that because that's what we're doing. And and whether or not we, we talk about how we feel about each other, I don't really think actually matters. It's, it's all about what we do with each other. And within open source and within the, 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 the sort of the realness and humbleness of the old internet, I think there was a lot of that happening where you get together and you do something because you're all building something together. You're all there for a common purpose. And whether you really care about each other or not doesn't really have to be said. It doesn't really have to be qualified because it's obviously there because we're all there together doing a thing in each other's virtual companionship. And that's that's something. That's that's a connection. And I, I, I kind of feel like that's more of a connection a lot of times than what we make on the GitHubs and the GitLabs and the Mastodons and the Twitters and all of these other places on the internet that are so exciting and so social and so communal and yet just so devoid of, of actual connection. So work on that with me, if you will, and enjoy the rest of your coffee. I'll talk to you next time. listening to GNU World Order, I have been Klaatu, your friendly host. Feel free to contact me online. I can be found on IRC on the Freenode network as NotKlaatu. I often hang out in the Augcast Planet channel, the Slacker Media channel, and a few others. Or you can just message me directly. I have no problem with that. I'm also on Jabber as Klaatu at 404.city. You can also email me I'm Klaatu at member.fsf, as in Free Software Foundation, .org. And finally, you can find me on the Mastodon network at mastodon.xyz slash at Klaatu. Generally online, I'm either Klaatu or not Klaatu. This show's website is gnuworldorder.info. You can also find me posting shows on hackerpublicradio.org. And visit my info site, slackermedia.info, all about multimedia and Linux and open culture. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.